Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Now depending on who you are and where you may, may actually live, and uh, believe it or not, <laughs> this podcast goes worldwide, uh, you may or may not have seen uh, a particular commercial um, the commercial, I think, is selling insurance, maybe something like that. But the idea is that there's usually two individuals, there's usually a disagreement, and with that then there is a review. Now, what makes it interesting is that it's based upon anyone who may or may not have watched <laughs> The National Football League. Um, you could maybe be fortunate enough to actually go to ball games. Um, they have this review process. I'm not sure exactly all that goes into it or all the specifics of it. But if you disagree with the play, and I think if you have a timeout and you get one per half, something like that, you could pull out a red flag. <laughs> you could throw it or can throw it on the field and that play will be reviewed. If it's a penalty call, it can be reviewed. If it's a play and maybe there's not a penalty, but you think there should be one, it could be reviewed. But the premise of the commercial, which by the way, airs during a lot of these football games, makes sense, right? The premise of the commercial is, though, that one says, it's your fault, and the other says, no, it's not, or maybe you did this, and the other says, no, I didn't, and then they review it, and then they find out that actually the person did it, and then there's all that embarrassment and chagrin and <laughs> whatever word would appropriately fit. Now... Why am I bringing that up on word? Uh, the counseling process is kind of like that. Before we go there, though, I'm going to read an article from Psychology Today. It is the current edition, as best I know it, is out. I don't think the January is out yet. It's a November-December 2022 edition. Liars typically tell the truth up to the point when they want to withhold something. They then skip over that potentially incriminating information and resume telling the truth. In this manner, they only provide facts that can be verified. Withholding, though, creates gaps in their speech that must be addressed with verbal bridges, the most common of which were identified by my research as then... So, after, when, as, while, and next. These bridges identify where liars are withholding information, so identifying them provides specific areas for additional inquiry. A student suspected of taking $20 from a teacher's office during a break in classes, for example, was asked to produce a statement about her activities at the time. She wrote, I arrived at 7.45 a.m. with Jenna. 
I came into the room, put my bag at my desk, and Jenna and I went to the snack area to get some coffee. I returned to the classroom and sat at my desk. At 8.50, we went on a break. Jenna and I went to the bathroom. After that, I came back to the classroom, and Jenna stayed in the bathroom. She came back to the classroom soon. We sat at our desk and waited for our class to continue. The use of the text bridge after creates an information gap between the time she went to the bathroom and the time she came back to the classroom, sufficient to steal the $20, which, after a more detailed follow-up interview, the student admitted to doing. That was written by Jack Schaefer, Ph.D. He is a behavioral analyst for the FBI and the author, author, author of The Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide to influencing, attracting, and winning people over. Sounds like a good read. So Jack is identifying how he can identify <laughs> during an information gathering interview uh, so that he can, <laughs> I suppose being a behavioral analyst for the FBI, help solve crimes or absolve people of guilt, at least for further investigation, sufficient to further investigate uh, remove them from the list of those that are still suspects. Now again, what does that have to do with psychological counseling? Well, in both cases, <laughs> I'm not an FBI analyst and I didn't write a great book. But I do interview people. And part of my job is not necessarily to determine criminality, unless it would be that they're liars, but it would be to help them to determine what's going on and fix the problem. Now, there's a difference between <laughs> lying and problems. I'm not trying to correlate those two with this exception. If it's denial, you're never going to fix the problem. Why? Because if you deny it, you don't own it, you're not going to see all the facts embedded in it, it being the situation, circumstance, it also being your choice of actions, it being what the consequences are then of those act reactions or that action or those actions as a reaction, it being then adaptability. That's the essential element of all science, scientific methodology, research, investigation. You identify all the facts that you can before you start to put together a thesis, a hypothesis, and then even so you presume that you're wrong <laughs> to the extent you may not have all the facts, but you're earnestly with positive intention trying to find out all that you can about a situation and circumstance sufficient to then test your thesis, some of that is actually done by them going out and maybe making a modification, doing something differently, looking at it differently. Hopefully, within the context of psychology, 
that will result in a different outcome. If the outcome isn't what we want, we go back, so to speak, to the drawing board, not dismissing everything, but trying to hold on to the essential pieces that are most important that seem like they could be true to offer up with that then another hypothesis (laughs) with the additional data so that we can then further correct, refine, make it better even. Maybe it shown improvement, but maybe we need to work on practicing a bit more. But if you're lying, either with intention, which means consciously so, full awareness, which is probably bad enough, and there are certain situations where that happens. People come in knowing that they've done something wrong. There's a bit of culpability attached to it. There's an aversive consequence maybe that's already happened or will happen. Maybe in that sense there's a bit of criminal or sociopathic or sociopathy dimensions. Getting back to the FBI behavioral analyst. Because those individuals have already figured it out. If they spill the so-called beans, if they tell you the truth, then they're going to be responsible. Now, maybe that is in more material, pragmatic terms of some sort of penalty or cost that you have to pay. It may just be accepting responsibility for a horrible thing that's been done. Uh, And maybe that's it. Maybe the cost is only to your ego. (laughs) You. But those individuals already know. And they're not going to easily tell. And when you get too close to the truth, (laughs) me, uh, they're not going to come back. They don't want to deal with it. I understand that. They're not ready to. They're not prepared to. No matter how I package it, I can try to be very kind. I can even try to, uh, no pun intended, maybe intentioned, uh, be the good cop, bad cop. Uh, I could do that in sort of a way of poking at both sides. You know, being your friend, but also when you feel like you can trust me, I can say, well, but you did say this. I wouldn't do that with attention to heart, but I need to somehow remove the defenses. And if you really do trust me, you know that my intentions are good and you'll let me get away with that. (laughs) Maybe. But all of that said, there are some individuals that just can't see it. They're not necessarily criminal, It's not that they are consciously aware of it at some level, subconsciously. That's kind of one of those psychological constructs. We presume everybody knows at some level, but in psychological dimensions, maybe more than even conscious awareness subconsciously, they're in denial. Denial is not only lying to other people, as with all of that sociopathy, criminal kind of direction. Uh, Maybe they're not really criminals. Maybe they just don't want to admit they're wrong. People are narcissists. They're egotists. They don't want to. Maybe it's threatening their ego. I mean, there's a lot of angles on that. But the idea is you know it, and you're not going to admit it. And the closer we get to it, it's not only then a game to try to get that out, those truths out, 
but it becomes then a game to continue to try to hide and lie. And uh, if, again, I get too close, run away. But on the denial side of that, it's a defense mechanism. The person isn't intentioned necessarily to lie. They're not even consciously aware of it, presumably yet. And then my job is to bring it to awareness. Now, I still have to be cautious in my presentation. Not only to lessen the defenses, uh, avoidance. There's a, a lot of defense mechanisms or variations of a central defense. That's probably the correct way to say it. The central defense is some form of deception. But projection, reaction, formation rationalization, all of that's denial. But I have to be careful because I'll just engender more and more of that. And honestly, truthfully, compartmentalization is a form of denial. But, and we all do these things. It's not like any of us are guilt-free, so to speak. Again, no pun intended. When it comes to such things as defense mechanisms, denial... But some live more in the light of truth than others. Some have learned how to disengage. A denial is a part of grief. Let's go there for a moment. Now, what has grief got to do with it? It's got a lot to do with grieving loss. It's what we identify as an emotional, cognitive sort of acceptance of something that didn't go right, didn't go well, that translates loss. Again, it could be a material loss. It could be more psychological dimension. Uh, a lot of ways to express it. It could be literally, as most people think, when you bring up grief and bereavement, the loss of a person. But it can be anything that represents a, a major loss. And the more major, the more likely we're going to have emotions that go with it and with that kind of a trauma response, I want to say, um, denial. It's a stage of bereavement. It's a stage of grief. It's normal. We all go through that when we're faced with something that either trauma is so threatening or could be so challenging, we don't want to do it. It's part of that sort of defense mechanism, <laughs> fight or flight, ultimately. And even that is subconscious in the sense that you don't have to think about that. If it scares you enough, you're going to run from it or you're going to try to beat it up or defeat it. Or render it such that it would no longer be a threat. It, situations, objects, persons, whatever. All kinds to all kind of comes together in that way. Even so, in more physiological terms, the body goes into shock. Where really psychologically, when a major physical injury occurs or something happens uh, that causes physical to the point of life and limb threat to our existence. The body will just go into uh, emotionally, but more so physically, a shock reaction. 
Denial is sort of like that. Compartmentalization is sort of like that. So there's good reasons why it may remain subconscious, besides the fact people just overtly, obviously, consciously just want to lie to you. I have to see it that way because I need to be careful not to harm the person any more than they already are. And particularly when it comes to trauma, when it comes to compartmentalization, even so, loss, and maybe less severe, just simply a bit of denial. I don't want to admit that I did that. I'm not ready yet to deal with it. More conscious maybe than subconscious, but still... Not quite there and certainly not quite to the point of lying about it overtly with intention to deceive everyone for the sake of profiteering, uh, staying out of trouble, gain even, gaining somebody, gaming somebody to the essential end of gain. But we proceed slowly. And with that, generate (laughs) insight and awareness. We bring it to a level of conscious awareness where then choice exists beyond that reflexive, reactive aspect of (laughs) either fight or flight, reactive thinking, that sort of defense mechanism, denial, any of the other versions of that, particulars of that. Um, Because if we can proceed cautiously, carefully, if I can maintain rapport, if we can give the individual a chance to digest it, they will eventually, (laughs) with insight and awareness, get to the point that we can use the higher cortical functions, operations, the frontal lobe stuff of rationality and reasoning and problem solving where all of this great research model is applied, where we can really look at all the facts, do some healthy analysis of them, Healthy in the sense of adaptive, come up with theories, hypotheses, work through it, and the emotions won't get in the way. (laughs) Strong emotions. It's all protective. It's unfortunately very, very rudimentary and very basic. Until you close those off or shut those down, they get closed off in a healthy way. Shut down, it's a better way of saying it. It's going to interfere with your ability to see it. Insight, awareness, gain or garner all the facts. But also affects your way you think. You don't think so clearly in fight or flight mode. You're just trying to survive. But you have to turn that off, close that off, shut that down, lest it then continue to compromise the clarity of thought. Good, clear, rational thinking is not done in the immediacy, imminence of a fight or flight reaction. Great anxiety and fear. You have to be calm. You have to be 
relaxed. You have to feel safe. And the body knows how to do that. Both systems are very, very good at what they do. They just don't do the... Both cannot be operational. They don't do well functioning at the same time. You can't do that. They're mutually exclusive. We don't do well. It doesn't work. It can't happen at the same time. So we have to constantly shut that down. Now, talking about threatening things, talking about traumatizing things, doing the investigation, the interview, trying to get to the truth, trying to apply rationality, reasoning, empiricism, that highest of scientific principles, a validation, uh, as with proving of sorts what is and what isn't, not only factual but in interpretation, relevance to the, to the situation, circumstance, what is truth, what it, how it fits into your life, your life story. There's going to be all kinds of places along the way where it'll kind of be like we're in that in-between. It's, it is mutually exclusive, but that transitioning will have to go back and forth. And there'll be some constant fear and residual, and we'll kind of calm it down conversationally. All the pull back a bit. Get relaxed, and then we'll reapproach it. It's sort of what I was saying at the very beginning of the podcast. It's not necessarily to set somebody up, but I have to do a bit of both of those things. I have to constantly be good cop, and then at times it's going to feel like I'm a bad cop, but I'm really not. I'm just trying to get the confession. But it's not with judgment or criminality attached to it. It's just... It, it is judgment, but it's not a moral judgment. It's just we have to analyze. We have to apply critical thinking to it so we can get a better answer. It's not criticism of you as a person. That makes any sense. It's just trying to assist the individual to come up with a better answer. But even so, people do confuse those two things. They feel like it's a psychological personal attack on their individuality, their identity, their ego. I get that. I understand that. That's why I have the training I have that helps me understand that, but also helps me to do what I need to do to know and be aware when I'm kind of, unfortunately, I have to bring up things that puts people in a lying sort of state of mind. (laughs) Subconsciously, Assuming positive intention and regard, having that toward the individual. I don't think they're doing it to game me in a sense of just lying. Some do, as I've confessed, but I think the majority that come see me don't. But it can, as you might at this point garner, gather, it can be a little slow. It can take a little time. If I go in too fast and talk too much, a lot of people aren't going to come back. It may be the truth, but they're not because it's too threatening. And you don't always know. And there is always a choice. And even if they don't come back, I do think there's a bit more insight or awareness Even if it then becomes a matter of concurrent validity, which means maybe I've said it, maybe they can't really address it just yet, they go to somebody else and then somebody else says it, maybe it's the people that you live with who are probably going to see it 
better than certainly you, if you're in denial, may not have all the knowledge, education, and training that I do as a psychological counselor, but they're going to see it. But eventually, hopefully, you can't run from that forever. Because the consequence is what you don't attend to, you tend to repeat. What you don't address tends to keep coming up. Why? If for no other reason than denial creates a blind spot. You don't see it coming. (laughs) And though you may not as much go seek it out, some in my business believe that people do that. They seek it out in order to try to finally find the fix to something that is still a mystery to them. I kind of am inclined to think some of that's true, but I'm also inclined to think maybe more so even, if you don't see it, you're going to trip over it again and again and again. Why do I say again and again? Because if it's got to do with people, if it's got to do with humans and human behavior, it's hard to escape people. It's hard to escape human behavior. You have to learn You have to learn how to adapt. You can't live in denial or avoidance. It's not a good coping strategy. Whether it's, again, consciously or subconsciously driven. Again, once more, it's a little both. But you can't go through life in denial. It doesn't work. And you can't go through life only in reactive thinking. It doesn't work. Um, Eventually, you'll try to shut yourself off from everything, and oddly enough, paradoxically enough, uh, counterintuitively enough, that can be the death of you just as well. We need people, we need healthy interactions for the sake of not only emotional support, but literally in physical terms. We need each other. My job is to help the individual so that they can live their life as best they can in context of not only the more material threats of life and limb, of survival, but also to do that with others so that they can then help each other to grow, to learn, to become more confident in dealing even with loss, to understand it better. Why? Because it's essential to life. You, you don't go through life without losing because there's no gain. You have to make room for the new stuff. But we need that to stay adaptive. To succeed, not only staying adaptive, remaining adaptive, but it all translates long-term in repeated again and again and again sort of application to success in life. So, I'm not a behavioral analyst with the FBI, and certainly Jack Schaefer is. And as much as he's written this small excerpt, he's written it from the standpoint of Just the perspective of getting the data and the facts. But I think in some ways, not only should I be that way and am that way, but maybe you should be that way. Uh, Maybe if you 
can have that conversation with yourself. Possibly that would be helpful. There's a theory of psychology that is called transactional analysis. Now, transactional analysis is not as popular, I don't think, as it used to be. We went through this whole analysis thing, insight awareness in our analysis, psychoanalysis, in the early days, I'll say it that way, of psychology. Why? Because we were just trying to figure out what's going on. And I think it did a good job, so to speak, over time and certainly in the way of within time then the progression of how we've understood human operations when it comes to psychology or the domains of psychology. But even as an industry or a field of study or as a branch of science, we've come to an awareness sufficient we should be able to get past the denial and I think the gear was sort of shifted somewhere along the way or maybe that's a poor analogy the focus was shifted now we don't have to worry so much kind of even like an individual who comes in to talk to again someone such as myself someone like myself we have to start with insight and awareness but within the history of psychology, systems and theory, speaking specifically to systems and theory, the way we've come to think of it, we're at a point where we shifted into more, okay, well, what do we do about it? Now, I think that's important, and, and certainly it's arguable. Insight and awareness doesn't do anything if you can't do anything with it. But I do think that we'll eventually get to the point where we're so focused on cognitive behavior, dialectical behavior, what do you do with it, coping skills and strategies, things that will all of a sudden begin to need to go back a bit more to the insight and awareness because <laughs> we'll lose sight for, of why we're doing it. Yeah, it has to be rooted in something real primary and real basic, adaptability, can't be so superficial. We have to understand the process itself, those kind of interventions, CBT, DBT, acronyms for cognitive behavior therapy, dialectical behavior therapy. They really aren't so interested in that. But transactional analysis was, still I think has some application, current. But basically what it did was it presumed that you have at least two parts of you and you need to talk to yourself. At least allow one of those parts of you to be as smart, educated, aware, consciously so, as Jack Schaefer is. Or maybe Dave Clay is. Or whomever it is that you may go see and talk to, the investigator. While you're also then, from that objective position of science, of rationality reasoning, willing to go to those emotional parts of yourself. You could do that. You could learn that skill set. You can have that internal conversation or dialogue with yourself. But you just have 
to kind of learn, I was going to say no, but learn how to intuitively do that. But as with anything that requires some practice, what is there in life that doesn't? The more you do it, the more it becomes second nature. The more it becomes second nature, the less you have to think about it. The more it becomes part of your identity, who you are, incorporating the objective, the scientific, the empirical, the methodology, as with a learned skill set itself, is probably where the win is. You need to begin to learn to think like Jack Schaefer or Dave Clay and do this to yourself. It won't always be so easy. Again, innately in us, there's going to be the denial, the compartmentalization. It's going to be as physiologically based as it is going to be in some psychological sort of context, subconscious denial. Just don't overtly lie to yourself. Don't become sociopathic in it. Hold on to that objective, rational reason part and approach the emotions knowing full well you're going to go back and forth. It's not, again, good cop, bad cop, but it could feel like that a bit. You can't really trick yourself You, again, may need the additional supports of someone such as myself or your family or close friends who themselves would have to be a bit skilled in practice at this or both of you. They'll get you further in the ditch or you'll take them further in the ditch or further out in the weeds. We don't want that. That doesn't help. But it's okay for you to do that. You don't have to have a license to do that. The whole point of the license is, if you don't know how to do that, I'm not going to steer you wrong. And within that, I'm not going to do anything in a sociopathic way to manipulate or take advantage of you. I acknowledged that earlier. If I do anything, it is with the greatest of intentions to help you. And it's not about me. It's not profiteering or secondary gain. As leading that, there is compensation, undeniably. But you, you know, compensate your doctor too, medical doctor. And that's okay. So there's always a potential, but we try to live up to all of those things I just got through saying. But if you're learning to do this for yourself, you might not need as much of me or someone like me. And who knows? You make it to a point where even without a license, you can practice all the psychology you want to. Do it at home. (laughs) Do it in an educated, informed way. Do it as I'm offering the paradigm up is how we should think the mind of a psychologist should be. Highest order, ethical, trained, educated, experienced, all of that. But that's why I do the podcast. (laughs) You can do this for yourself. Now, am I saying do it and knowing that you're not going to do it? Well, no, don't work on your car unless you know what you're doing. But if you know what you're doing, you don't have to go see a mechanic to pay for it, right? 
Don't wire your house if you don't know what you're doing. But if you know what you're doing, you can do some basic wiring. (laughs) Don't drive a car unless you know how to operate it. You do have to have a license for that as well. But that's only to, again, establish you know what you're doing. But if you know what you're doing, it's okay. It's okay to take a bit of that risk. And I think even if it has some risk attached to it, as long as you're not intentioned to harm yourself or other people with it, it's all part of learning. And it, the benefits outweigh any of the risks. Or as risks might translate to some dimension of liability, I'm willing to take the chance. That's what the podcast begins about. It's about empowering you so that you can do as much of this on your own. It's like watching those home improvement shows on television where the guy says, well, you really don't need to be an electrician to install the light. This is how you do it. Or they're telling you about all the stuff so that those weekend, you used to call them weekend warriors, people can go out on the weekend and... Put on the construction hat and, you know, build decks and barns. And, you know, people used to do stuff like that. So, we're not liars in a bad way, but we're all liars. Just know when you're lying and know how to call yourself out. And politely, respectfully, you're okay calling somebody else out if you do it in love and you do it with a positive intention and you do it in a way that doesn't harm them, the person. You can do that. And that's basically what I do. Lying is not then always attached to pathology. Um, Some of it is adaptive. You're not ready to deal with it. The stuff of subconscious defense mechanism, as psychology would go. It just requires insight and awareness. But somewhere even then in your insight and awareness, you have to make a choice. Are you going to see it? Are you going to continue to deny it? And though you may or may not stick with the person who first revealed it to you, such as myself, hopefully you won't give up on the process and will continue to seek out. Whatever it is that is still scaring you so much and is so overwhelming even to consider it, you're really not brave enough yet, courageous enough. You don't have enough faith yet, trust, that facing it, an answer will come. I will say this, there's an answer to everything. You just have to find it. I hope I do that on the podcast. I hope I do that fairly. I hope I do that objectively. I hope I'm friendly, and I hope it's conversational. But if it is, I'd like to invite you back to the next episode of Word with Dave Clay, and I always mean it. I do wish you good health, as well as good mental health, psychological health, and well-being. I want you to be happy if you can. And if you're sad, I want you to trust that you can get the happy and enjoy your life. Find meaning and purpose in your life and enjoy it as best you can. So until next time.